Before the 2016 Brexit referendum in the UK, British politician and Leave advocate Michael Gove refused to name any economists who backed Britain's exit from the European Union. He said that, quote, people in this country have had enough of experts. More than a decade after the great financial crisis, many Americans apparently felt the same way that year. They voted for a populist president whose campaign agenda was roundly mocked by elite economists as either wrongheaded or unrealistic or both. Donald Trump rejected many traditional Republican economic policy ideas, and more broadly, he rejected the economic consensus on approaches to trade, taxes, and spending. It wasn't that he had enough of experts, but rather that he never had any use for them to begin with. Yet the age of economists as key policy and governmental players is a fairly recent one, and their rise and fall in status is critically documented in the new book, The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society by Benjamin Applebaum, who is a member of the New York Times editorial board and previously served for nine years as the Washington correspondent for the New York Times, where he covered the Federal Reserve and other aspects of economic policy. Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Um, the Economist Hour, when was that and what happened that you, don't, that you don't like within that hour? So the period I'm talking about basically is a, a revolution that begins in the late 1960s early, early and the early 1970s uh, where economists become increasingly prominent and important in policymaking uh, and specifically in advocating for an approach to policymaking of, of doing less policymaking, of stepping back and allowing markets to allocate resources uh, removing the hand of government from the economy, uh, freeing things up uh, so that, uh, as they say, the uh, the economy can produce as much as possible. So it is sort of, it's not just sort of the rise of experts, economic experts and policymaking, though it's certainly that, but it's particularly sort of, I don't know what you would call, free market, neoliberal, conservative, it was sort of the rise of that policymaking establishment. That's right. I mean, there's a bit of a two-step here. So, you know, the rise of economists altogether doesn't begin that much earlier. It's only during the Great Depression that economists begin to measure the size of the right, American we economy. Right, GDP measure. Absolutely. Really. You know, when, when the Great Depression happens, the Senate doesn't know how large the American economy is. So they commission a guy named Simon Kuznets to figure it out. And he comes back and says, well, it, it used to be a lot bigger and now it's a lot smaller. And that was GDP. Uh, and it's only in the wake of World War II that the government begins to take seriously the idea that it can manage economic growth. Uh, and and in the early phases, that's a rather stumbling process. So really, you know, you start to see economists in government, but not until the late 60s uh, do they achieve uh, this this really sort of central primary position in the policymaking process. Uh, and that happens to coincide with with a particular type of economic philosophy, uh, with a view that government should should unhand the economy. Right, uh, an economic philosophy which really uh, sort of took the reins of of policy making starting in the early 1980s. Even though the Economist Hour may have begun earlier than that, it, the rise of that particular variant uh, was in the early 1980s, and uh, you don't think it worked out so well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it had a couple of big effects. Uh, the first is that uh, you know we got a lot more inequality as a consequence of this particular approach to economic policy, uh, and I think that's been a big problem. Uh, the second is we didn't get the one thing we were told that we were paying for, which is more growth. The idea was that if you followed these policies, the economy would would prosper, and in the long run, I, I think it has not. Uh, and the final aspect of this, that I think, is really important, is that. That rise of inequality uh, has really strained, I think, our communities and our democracy. So I think there's been uh, real consequences for, for the fabric of this nation, for the idea of we the people that is so necessary to have a functioning democracy. 
So uh, are you mostly talking about advanced economies and the United States? Yeah, I, I think that this is a phenomenon that, that has taken hold to greater and lesser extents across the developed world. So, you know, there was an embrace of markets really throughout the world. And for many nations that had very little in the way of, of markets or market-based policies, this was a really good thing. I mean, it elevated billions of people from abject poverty in places like China and India. Uh, and so, you know, in many respects, this turn toward markets was enormously beneficial. But in developed countries, most of which already had significant market economies, the sort of the purification of, of this market ideology, uh, the turn toward a more uh, rigid adherence to market-based ideas went too far, basically. It was a, a revolution with a lot of benefits. And then, like many revolutions, it kept going uh, past the point of those benefits. Because early in the book, you say that one of the promise of having uh, economists involved in policymaking that would help mankind loosen the surely bonds of scarcity. Um, and in a, but in a major way, that, that did happen. Um, while you may have concerns about the, you know, the change in the Gini coefficient in the United States, a, you know, a billion, 800 million, a billion people coming out of extreme poverty across Asia, that is, that's a pretty significant accomplishment during the Economist Hour. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to minimize that in any way. That's obviously a, a big part of the story here is that a turn toward more market-based policies was enormously successful in uh, reducing uh, abject poverty and, and lifting people's standard of living. Uh, and, and that's very important. Uh, and, and that is indeed part of the story. But do you, I mean, do, and do, but do you, do you think that uh, the effects of these policies and in the United States, a very wealthy country, that that do you think that more than offsets those other gains? Because I mean, the title of the book is "False Profits, Free Markets, Markets, and the Fractured Society," and I think someone, just, and especially reading a review of the book, would say this is a book about the failure of market economics. If market economics failed, because because why? Because that is a that's a fairly massive achievement that I would say is probably one of the bi- you know maybe one of the biggest achievements uh, you know in two hundred years of economics. Uh, after the Industrial Revolution, all these people all of a sudden being part of the world economy, their standard of living rising, all those extra sort of, you know, brains hoping, helping us hopefully work on the problems of the future. Um, that, that is not the story of this book. I don't, I, I don't think that that trade-off was necessary. I don't think that there had to be a trade-off between the increased prosperity of the developing world and the stagnation and problems that we've seen in the developed world. I think that you could have brought more market-based policies to the developing world without having the problems that I describe in this book in the developed world. I think that there's no necessity to that relationship. Uh, the healing power of and, right. We can uh, hopefully do both. So this sort of really began, uh, you mentioned earlier, is when we when we, we began seeing eco- uh, economists being looked to more seriously uh, for policy, but then sort of the, uh, the more market-based, right of center, influenced by Milton Friedman types, becoming more influ- influential starting in the early 1980s. Uh, why was that? I mean, if uh, I mean, what was the problem that they said they would solve? Because yeah. so I, I mean, I, you're about my age, and I remember the 1970s. Yeah, they were not great. That was not a great decade. I think the there was less inequality, but as I recall, it was a period of tremendous economic volatility. We had high inflation, stagflation. We had we had recessions from the late 60s to the early 80s. Uh, the stock market went nowhere. I think inflation-adjusted terms is about down by about two-thirds. So clearly they were responding to something in the 1970s that wasn't working. Yeah, there's a story I tell in the book about a woman named Juanita Kreps, who was the Commerce Secretary in the Carter administration, 
and was also a professor of economics at Duke University. And she resigns from the Carter administration because she's so frustrated by the failure of their economic policies. But more than that, she resigns from Duke University because she says she doesn't know what to teach her students anymore. And that's really where we were, the, you know, the standard, the, what was then the conventional approach to economic policy, uh, you know, a Keynesian macroeconomic policy, a hands-on regulatory policy. Uh, it, it appeared to have failed. Uh, the economy was in trouble. That was very obvious uh, and and there was a need for something new. And it's in that environment of failure that policymakers go looking for a new approach. And there's tremendous appeal to this alternative. You know, Milton Friedman sort of, if you were going to summarize him in a nutshell, his view was that government should do less, take its hands off the economy. Uh, and there was a real sort of appealing modesty to that. He wasn't saying, I, Milton Friedman, should be in charge. He was saying, nobody should be in charge. And so you move from this generation in which economists had the remarkable arrogance to sort of stand there and say, put us in charge, we will manage the economy, we will deliver better results. And then you have Friedman coming along and saying, well, the results have been bad, we need a new approach. And I'm not suggesting that I should be appointed in their place. What I'm saying is we need to unhand the economy and, for example, you know, replace the Federal Reserve with a computer program. Do you think if we were to go back in time and ask somebody in 1980 what the next generation, 30 years would be like? And if you had painted that picture, again, this is sort of my impression. It's very, again, it's impressionistic. People would have been very surprised about how well things have worked out. But I, I remember, like, you know, the movies, the movies back then in the 1980s, whenever they showed the future, they, they were apocalyptic. Even in the early 80s, you had Blade Runner, you had movies like Soiling Green. What was the future? It was an era of scarcity, of, uh, of you know, a population gone wild, uh, envi complete environmental uh, catastrophe. Uh, and again, you know, Blade Runner, also not a, very, uh, not, not, not a very pleasing picture. And then by the mid-80s, you started seeing movies like Back to the Future 2, which when they showed the future, it was... It was it was like a it was like a paradise. People on hoverboards. Uh, and it was not it was not an era of scarcity. So something so something happened where things did not turn out the way people uh, anticipated. Do you think things did not work out as well as people had expected? Do you think do you think these economists overpromised then and did not deliver? My father was born in 1953, and three quarters of the men born in that year ended up making more than their fathers by the age of 40. I was born in 1978. Less than half of American men born in that year made more than their fathers by the age of 40. And that's not just because we happened to turn 40 in 2008, by the way. If you do an average of the cohort five years on either side, you get essentially the same statistic. The, the fact of the matter is that for many Americans, the economy stopped getting better. And so while it's true that, that the quality of the movies continued to improve and the quality of the stuff in the movies continued to improve. I think improve, the optimism went up. So people looked around them and they saw that you know, things had not turned out as bad. And there, there, was something, there was something real going on in the economy where things had gotten a lot better, whether or not that matched the predictions. I mean, why didn't this populist revolution happen in 1990 or, or 2000? It's because in a real way, perhaps, our living standards were going up in a way not captured by bad inflation-adjusted statistics. I mean, very few people, I think, would like, boy, I take my kids back and we, we go look at the old house I grew up in. They're like, gee, you know, we, we didn't know you were that poor to live in a place like that. But don't you think the real standards of living have, have gone up there's a lot? No, or there's you... no question. No, I mean, I, I'm not here to dispute that at all. But the two things that I do want to say about that are, are first that I think it's important uh, to say that inequality in and of itself, we've learned a lot about the degree to which inequality as such is a problem 
a problem that mimics poverty in many respects. Uh, and so, you know, even if absolute living standards are rising, distribution can still be an important issue. That's one piece of this. And the other that I think is very important is that a lot of the prosperity of those years was built on a foundation of investments in earlier years. So the 1990s, which we remember as, you know, this last era when the economy oh, was working those are great. really well. Love Everybody them. loves those years, love right? the 90s. Well, last we, good decade. Right? We entered the 90s with the most educated workforce in the developed world. Uh, and in large part, that was because we'd been spending a lot of money on public education. Uh, the generation that came of age in the 2010s is below average for education in the developed world. And the reason for that is we've been spending a lot less money on public education. So I think the 90s were great, but in a real sense, it was, you know, people walking around in an orchard and picking all the fruit and forgetting to plant new trees. Um, the big problem, the big economic problem coming out of the 1970s was inflation. It seemed like an unsolvable problem. And there were concerns that the kinds of policies being put in by conservative politicians were just going to make inflation worse. Isn't that a tremendous achievement? I mean, it's kind of a leading question. Isn't that a tremendous? No, but it but, is. but that, that I mean, yeah. that was the, that. You would have been surprised that by the night if you had told someone in 1989 that the two biggest problems heading into the 80s, the Cold War and inflation, both would be solved a decade later. You would have been. They would have thought you were incredibly optimistic. Poly no way is that those two things were sort of going to be always be with us. And, the, and that's, a, that's a, a victory by the sort of neoliberal conservative pro-market economists. And, and one thing I'm very cognizant of, and, and I think that this is an important point, is that to some extent, you know, the policies that people love to revile, you know, you hear many liberals criticizing, for example, supply-side economics. What they often mean is the portion of supply-side economics that exceeded the part that was an unmitigated victory. So, you know, everybody wanted tax rates to come down from the heights of the 1960s. At some point, people started disagreeing about whether that process should keep on going. And that's what they decided to call supply-side economics. Same thing with inflation. There's a portion of that that's just a pure unmitigated victory. Less inflation was good. Uh, and then it kept going and going and going. And by the time you're in the 1990s and you have Alan Greenspan testifying before Congress that 1% inflation is better than 2% inflation, and meanwhile, privately telling his colleagues that he has no idea if that's true, that's a revolution that's gone too far and is coming at that point at the expense of a higher unemployment rate and there start to be consequences. So we can agree that getting from 10 to 2 was great, uh, but it didn't stop it to. When do we sort of go off course? When did these policies sort of take a bad turn? I don't think there was, was it a from year. the beginning, no. like in 1980, or was it in the in the 90s? That's when we went too far. But the 80s policies were fine. I want to continue. You know, I, I don't actually think 1980 is the hinge year. I think that a lot of this stuff really is underway well before Reagan. Mm -hmm. I mean, Reagan is involved in this stuff before 1980. You know, uh, so I think you know a lot of these policies uh, really predate the arrival of Ronald Reagan. He consolidates it. He brings it to new prominence by all means. But mm -hmm. this stuff really starts in the 70s. But setting that aside, I think, you know, in some way, the seeds of how it goes too far are there from, you know, the origins of this stuff. But the actual consequences take a while to be felt. So to take an easy example of this antitrust policy, the reformulation of, of antitrust policy around a very simple model that says, uh, if prices are going up, it's bad. If prices are going down, it's good. Uh, that initially works as a model, but as it keeps on getting implemented over and over and over again in, say, the airline industry, you reach a point where there is 10, 8, 4 airlines. All of a sudden, you've run out of price competition. Uh, workers are getting squeezed. Uh, and, and then you need to look around and say, well, where did it go wrong? Well, it's not that it went wrong in any specific year. It's that if you had a model that said the only thing we're worried about is price competition, at some point you're going to wake up and discover that you're having consequences that you could have avoided. 
So so it sounds like you're not happy with the policy turn, like in 1980s, or the more pro market, right? Am I? I don't want. I, I, don't, I don't want to mistake. Right, no, I mean, I think I think again, I think it's a story of a revolution that went too far. I think there are things about it that were enormously productive and necessary correctives to policies that, that had themselves. Because I'm trying to think like down. what the so starting like in, in 1980 with Reagan, it says some of these things certainly starts at least philosophically before Reagan. Yeah. That that what is the alternative? What is sort of the alternative path taken in the 1980s? Um, is there some other country that did it better? So I think there are examples of countries that were more effective in specific areas of policy. I don't think there's like one shining ideal out there. But I mean, I think the easiest way to do this is to look at specific areas of policy. So again, you know, with respect to, say, deregulation of the airlines, the airline industry during the mid-century, everything about it was regulated, where you flew, how much you paid, what you could eat on the airplane. Uh, and economists come in, a guy named Alfred Kahn, a Cornell University economist, is put in charge by Carter of deconstructing that system. Uh, and he does it gleefully. And for the rest of his life, he feels great about being on crowded airplanes because he thinks that's sort of the symbol of his victory. Airplanes were half full under regulation, and now they're, you know, 80, 90 percent full. And prices are much lower. And the average American flies eight times more often today. That sounds like a victory. Absolutely. <laughs> like a All of that is great. You All may not think great. so for that 90 minutes, but, but once you right. you know, afterwards, how much money sell, then it probably seems more like a victory. And, and we actually have regular elections on this subject. Uh, people vote by buying the cheapest available ticket every time they go shopping for tickets. So if people actually wanted higher quality service, they'd pay for it. They don't. Uh, you know, the marketplace is speaking. And all of that's really good. What's the downside? Well, there's two things that, that you know, you would have wanted to do differently, in my view. The first is that the government essentially, uh, and originally they have this premise that uh, the airline industry doesn't display what are called efficiencies of scale, which means that small carriers are going to be able to compete on even footing with large carriers, and therefore you don't need to worry about mergers or consolidation. And so they don't. And what happens is you end up with four airlines, and anybody who's gone online to shop for airline tickets recently knows that they all magically charge the same price for any available flight. So, you know, the failure to enforce antitrust means that that market has broken down. And for the first time in history, it's cheaper to fly in Europe than it is in the United States. That's an example of, you know, how that evolution just keeps going past the point where it's good for us. You mentioned these technology companies, and that's kind of the lead story uh, rather than the airlines or other sections of the economy as far as uh, antitrust. Those companies, though, don't neatly fit into sort of that that framework. Um, they seem to act like their, their dominance or some people would call it monopolies are not particularly durable. They're, 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 they're acting like there's another company that could, and if not displace them in their core business, will come up with a, new, a, a completely different way of doing what they're doing. They're spending... You know, a lot of money on research and development. Uh, they act, they don't act like they have fat and happy monopolies, and they're continuing trying to innovate. Is that is that are they really a good example of the economy gone wrong? I think that they're they're certainly a different case than some of the industries that we're talking about. But here's my concern with those companies in particular: is that we've allowed them to keep on eating their competitors. So I compared in the book to you know the Greek god Crisis, who kept on eating his children. That's you know that's the problem. Is is it's fine to say that it's an industry in which we see a pattern of you know emerging competitors displacing monopolists. Uh, and that's good as long as you allow those competitors to emerge. But as a business model, companies like Google and Facebook have adopted the policy of essentially buying their emergent rivals. Uh, and that allows them to essentially become the next monopolist. And and I think that that's, that's has the potential to cause real problems. The Economist Hour, I mean, it suggests that, that it's over with. And perhaps this book, you know, uh, would have been fine coming out in 2012. 
It's out now. And we sort of have the economist hour may be over. We're, and we're running a big experiment in the U.S. economy and maybe some other economies. What happens when we sort of ignore what the economists have to say? How do you think that experiment is working out so far? Well, so I think that the reason that I still think it's an important thing to write about, I mean, as you I, say- And I, no way am I <laughs> suggesting this book is not relevant, lively, and should be purchased. I am not suggesting that. Uh, you know, as you said in the introduction, we've clearly reached a different moment where we have policymakers dismissing the ideas of economists and technocrats, the value of technocrats. I, I think, you know, we reached an inflection point in 2008 in the aftermath of the crisis where, you know, it felt- as it did in the 70s or the 30s, like the way we were doing things was obviously broken. And we were confronted by a moment when alternatives began to emerge. Some of those alternatives are terrible. Uh, and so you have this sort of, you know, what I think of as the turtle politics of nationalism, where you get into your shell and hope everything goes away. Uh, that's not a great response. We're living with it right now. Uh, you know, you've got people who are saying, you know, if the technocrats got it wrong, then we don't need technocrats. I think that's the wrong answer as well. So, you know, we're at this point where I think it is critically important uh, to to uh, have a better version of technocratic advice, basically. Uh, and I think the lessons of history have a lot to tell us about how we get there. Has the case been that the uh, the advice was not great? Or was it in many cases the advice was ignored? Because it took me about 30 seconds as someone who looks at policy to write down a list of things, which economists generally think are pretty good ideas, that politicians seem not to think are good ideas. I wrote down things like um, reforming entitlements, reforming the tax code, something like a value-added tax, agricultural subsidies, massive tax expenditures for things like uh, mortgages, uh, housing housing reform, which economists think is, is a, a huge, and you mentioned inequality is a huge issue, inequality. All things which uh, the politicians seem to really ignore. Have we overestimated how much influence these economists are having when there's so many areas which the politicians don't really care to, to care to follow up on their fine recommendations. I think the burden of this book is that it's 300 pages of uh, detailed storytelling about the ways in which economists did tangibly influence policy. And, you know, I, I think anyone who reads it will see that demonstrated in its pages. One of the things that was very striking to me in researching this book, I was not sure how easy it was going to be to trace the path from an idea to its adoption as policy. And in many of these cases, the paper trail is just clear and undeniable. You can watch economists directly influencing the adoption of policies that emerged from their academic work. Uh, and, and so the through line is just bright and clear. Does it mean that economists got everything they wanted? No, of course not. Uh, are there policies that economists you know, almost unanimously favor that have been ignored by policymakers? Obviously. Uh, but there are a lot of instances in which the economists were influential, and there's a pattern to that influence. And I think it's been consequential. And, and the, uh, so the ideas that you highlight, which you think have been sort of the, the, the most damaging ideas, is it, is it trade? Is it taxes? Taxes would seem to be a big one. Do you think we've just kind of gotten it wrong? So I think, you know, tra I don't think we've gotten trade wrong. I think we we mishandled, uh, you know, the, the uh, economic philosopher Carl Polanyi has a wonderful part of, of his famous book where he talks about the role of government in regulating the pace of change. And I really subscribe to that. I, I don't think the problem is trade. Trade is enormously beneficial when it's handled properly. I think that government has failed to regulate the pace of change and the consequences of change. So the failure of our trade policy is that, you know, we adopted the premise that the aggregate benefits exceeded the aggregate costs without ensuring that the losers actually, you know, shared in those benefits. Uh, and and that's well, that economists would have failure. said though that you know we can't forget about helping, you know, whether it's some sort of expanded no. trade adjustment. To so that to me that's another area where they're not 
Uh, no, because economists were yeah. explicit about this. It's actually explicit in their writings that you do not need to actually measure the distribution, that the aggregate is enough. I mean, this is explicitly the justification for trade policy, and indeed for many distributional policies, uh, is that it doesn't actually matter if the benefits get into the hands of the people who are losing. What matters is that the aggregate is favorable. And I can, you know, give you any number of examples of, of economists making that case. Not, It's not that their advice wasn't followed about distributing the benefits, is that they did not argue that the benefits need to be distributed. And and. And tax is also an uh, right. So I mean, I think on tax policy, you know, actually, I mean, I think tax policy gets a lot of the heat, but I actually think a lot of the regulatory stuff is probably more important. But yeah, I mean, with taxes, I think that in general, I would say this: I think inequality is a problem, and I think the solution is to make reducing inequality a focus of policy. My first order preference is actually not to use tax policy to do that. I think it's much more effective to act on opportunity and on pre-tax income distribution than to use taxes to redistribute income after the fact. But I do think that taxation has a role to play uh, and that it's been minimized in relative importance. Uh, in the mid-century, the wealthiest Americans paid slightly more than half of their income in taxes on average. That's now down in the mid to low 30s. Uh, I'm not sure we're better off as a result of that shift. But would you fundamentally change? Would you have the top tax rate go up to 75%? Would you institute wealth taxes? What I mean, what would you substantially... I mean, that, that's sort of my core question is, to what extent is this book a critique of economists and to what extent is it sort of a, a proposal for change and here, here's, how, here's how it could be better and here's how it would have been better had we done these things 20 years ago? So I, I think of this book primarily as a history. I think, you know, that it is a story of the way that economists influenced the course of policy and, and you know, the nature of American life. And I, frankly, is my hope that people who have disagreements about, you know, whether those developments have been good or bad will still find the story interesting and important. So that's number one. But I do have my own conclusions. They're not the primary focus of this book. They come, you know, toward the end. And I think the book has value without them. But if you're asking, you know, for my own views, I do tend to think that the role of taxation, uh, in particular, in limiting the growth uh, the accumulation and the preservation of large fortunes uh, would be beneficial, that the government should take a stronger hand in preventing people from just passing down massive amounts of money to their children who haven't done anything to deserve it and who are not particularly you know, good at using those resources. I, I think that that would be beneficial. But during that hour from the, uh, uh, from the 1960s up until recently, um, economists being highly influential, do you think that era would have been better, had a more, I mean, just from what we've looked at the last two years, if there had been far less influence from economists, far more influence from, I don't know, the alternative there, politicians. I, I look at the current environment and I see a professional economist being ignored and I see their, their place, uh, they're being replaced by TV pundits, um, you know, people who write investment newsletters, uh, you know, my gosh, TV pundits. Worse, you couldn't find a worse group of people. Um, this is not a. This is not a book. Uh, CNBC. Arguing so, for so government who, by pundits. Right. So who? Uh, so who would have replaced them from that that sort of lead policy making position that would have done better, or I think they just could have. You want them just to do a better job. I think I, I would say two things about that. The first is that I think that politicians ceded to economists too much of the responsibility for determining the goals of policy. Uh, the implementation of policy is something where economists have a real advantage uh, and real skill. But in determining what we were trying to achieve as a society, there was a defaulting to the assumptions of economics that I think was enormously harmful, specifically with regard to the premise that inequality was not a first-order concern of public policy. So I think 
you know, I would have liked our politicians to be much more active in insisting on what the goals of public policy should be, and then to rely on technocrats to figure out, you know, okay, if this is the goal, how do we optimize tax policy to get there? How do we optimize trade policy to get there? The, the point of this is not that we don't need economists. It's partly that we need better economists, but also it's partly that we need people to be directing the efforts of economists. I, I begin the book with a quote from William McChesney Martin, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1960s. Uh, he told a visitor that the Fed kept its economists in the basement because they asked really good questions, but they didn't know their own limitations. Uh, I think that's not a bad summary of economists. Someone needs to make sure that they're working for the public good. But, they, but that exact period, though, ended up with a chaotic decade in the 70s. Before they listened to the economists, Politicians were running things, and we ended up with a with a decade that was one of the absolute worst economic decades. It's not going to be called like the 1930s, but anyone who lived through that decade, the sheer economic and and and, and pessimism of that stems from a period before economists were looked to, that does not give me a lot of confidence uh, in, in 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 sticking the economists back down to the basement and letting the politicians occasionally ask them for a policy paper. Well, I would complicate that story for you a little bit. I mean, one of the big, you know, the first log on that fire is basically that the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, Kennedy in particular, starts to listen to Keynesian economists who haven't previously been that influential in government. And the big advice that they give him uh, is that you can spur economic growth, which is already doing pretty well, but you can maximize it. They argue that there's what they call an output gap uh, about the size of the Italian economy and that you can... Uh, increase the growth of the American economy, and you can do it. Their preference was actually for spending increases, but Kennedy knew that wasn't politically viable. So second best was tax cuts. So they start cutting taxes, and the economy booms. And Johnson starts spending more money on poverty programs, and the economy booms, also designed by economists. And the economy booms. And This is, and a, what, this is a scathing indictment of Keynesian economics. You're launching here. It is. And, and the specific indictment is that the Keynesians... Uh, whose worldview was premised on a better understanding of human behavior, uh, hadn't studied political behavior. Because, you know, when they come to Johnson in the late 60s and they say, well, the way you get the economy to grow faster is you cut taxes, and the way you get it to grow slower is you raise taxes, and it's time for a tax increase. And Johnson looks at them and says, I'm not raising taxes. That's crazy. And and so, you know, the Keynesian model of how you regulate the economic uh, temperature broke down at that point. That's the beginning of the runaway inflation of, of the 1970s. Uh, you get more failures of management uh, in the early years of the 70s. The oil shock is interpreted not as a supply side event, but as a demand side event. That's catastrophic. And so, you know, you actually do have economists in the engine room at this point contributing to the problems. Uh, so I'm not sure the conclusion is that, you know, that was the pre-economics era. It was just uh, a mismanaged era. So when you look around the global we'll finish this, who's who's getting it right? Who's closest to sort of your view of like, oh, there's that they have a good balance? I don't think that anybody is absolutely getting it right, but uh, I'd say a couple things about this. The first is, if you look at the growth of the French and American economies, everyone knows, and they're right, that the American economy has outpaced the French economy. If you remove the top 1% of the population in each country, income growth for the 99% in France and the 99% in the United States has been faster in France. So aggregate growth isn't everything. Distribution matters. Uh, and there are countries that have done a better job. Indeed, almost all developed nations have done a better job of distributing prosperity than has the United States. So that's number one. Number two, life expectancy in the United States is in decline, which I regard as like the single most shocking fact about modern life in the United States. We're the wealthiest nation on earth and we're dying sooner. And who's dying sooner is people with less money. 
Uh, and so you've got this huge growing divergence between life expectancies for the wealthy and for the poor. I don't know of any greater indictment of our economic policies than that simple fact. And then number three, I would contrast our economy in recent decades with the economies of, in particular, Asian nations that have invested heavily in development uh, and in and in specific, you know, infrastructure, uh, and have experienced much greater success in. Uh, you know, technology industries and in manufacturing industries than has the United States. So I think that there are lessons in other countries. Like that what, we what, could those countries what were those countries? Taiwan, South Korea uh, are two standout cases there. How many of the largest tech companies in the world are Taiwanese and South Korean? Well, if we're counting internet firms, then you're in a different world. If you're counting the manufacturing firms, then you're then you're talking about those countries. And the key difference, of course, is that you know the number of people in who are living you know comfortable lives on the back of Google is you know a bunch of millionaires, but not actually that numerous by comparison with the number of people who can live middle class lives if you're you know still Samsung and you're actually building the products. My guest today has been Benjamin Applebaum. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 